Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, listeners. This is Paula, and I'm with Steve. Hey, everybody. And we're Ohio Mysteries, and we've got a special treat for you. Tonight, rather than start our episode with some generic music, we're going to take the opportunity to start introducing you to some cool musical artists right here from our great state. If you're a band or a musician from Ohio creating original music, find out how you can be part of a future podcast. That's right. You can contact us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. We decided to do that. Hey, we're... We have uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame up north, so... That's right. This should be right down our alley. Exactly. Right now, we're going to let Dustin Hodgkinson of Green, Ohio, set the mood for tonight's mystery. Here's a clip of Dustin's song, Ghouls in the Headlights. Stick around till the end of the podcast to hear the full song and learn how you can find more of Dustin's music. Take it away, Dustin. mysteries. Some mysteries happen above ground, some mysteries happen below ground, and Ohio owes some of its mysteries to the cold, dark, deep waters of Lake Erie. So throw another log on the fire and settle in, campers. I'm your co-host and captain, Steve Yoder, and we're here with the live audience. If you need any life vests or underneath your chairs. <laughs> With me, as always, is the award-winning journalist Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal, at one point researching and writing about shipwrecks hidden below our beloved lake. Hi, everybody, and thank you, audience, for being with us tonight. (laughs) We were invited to a party tonight, so rather than delay our podcast, we just brought it to the party. Exciting, exciting. Paula, shipwrecks fascinate me. You know, my son loves shipwrecks. He even built the Titanic out of Legos, and it was pretty impressive, the details that he put into it. It's it's pretty amazing. But yeah, just um, shipwrecks in general, there's so many of them, and I cannot believe how many are in Lake Erie. Oh, and well, you know, the probably the most famous shipwreck of the Great Lakes, of course, was the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And that was headed to Cleveland. It happened in Lake Superior, so it, it doesn't qualify as an Ohio mystery. Um, but yeah, there, there are a lot of cool shipwrecks. And, you know, I, th- I think we're all kind of fascinated by them because, you know, it's when you die in a shipwreck, it's, it's not the ship that's killing you. It's the aftermath. And you don't know what that's going to be. You might be tossed overboard and you have nothing to cling on to. And you're just treading water in a storm. 
Or you might be out in the ocean and it's dark and there are sharks under your feet and you have no idea when one's going to get a hold of you. Right. Or you, you might make it to a lifeboat, but it's January <laughs> and there's a winter storm, winter, winter blizzard going on. Right. It's like that's, it just chills me when I think of the ways that you can die in a ship. Oh, yeah. I, I was on a cruise a couple of years ago and, of course, that was going through my mind even though, you know, it was nice smooth sailing, but it always goes through your mind, you know, what if and... Right. I took a picture of a banister out there that had some like duct tape on it, and I'm like, seriously, is this uh, <laughs> is this code? <laughs> duct tape holds the world together. You were fine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, in the grand scheme of things, one wouldn't imagine Lake Erie to be such a monstrous threat. I mean, surely traversing the wide Atlantic or Pacific Ocean would be a scarier endeavor. You know, and on paper, you might think that Lake Erie is the second smallest of the Great Lakes, and it's the shallowest. And Rita, you had asked me this question earlier. Her average depth is only 62 feet. That's a six-story building. Right. Uh, that's why Lake Erie would freeze over at times. Yeah. yeah. They would actually have to use dynamite to, you know, blow away the ice. Well, and her deepest point is only 210 feet, and it's less than a, a football field. Wow. And those are the, that's the reason it is deceptively dangerous, because if you've got a big, deep body of water, the water can absorb the wind, absorb the movement. You know, it's not disturbed quite as fast as a shallow lake. And on Lake Erie, you know, winds that are not necessarily going to rock your boat in the ocean can whip up into these huge waves on the lake. Wow, that's interesting. And so that is why Lake Erie is so dangerous. Now, take the scariest of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, and turn it into a highway in that in the 1800s, the late 1700s, a quarter million people a year were using the lake to get to the west. You know, they didn't want to take machetes and hack through this wild forest. Nobody had Right, take the easy yet. way. You get on the lake. So you've got the most dangerous lake, and you've got a quarter of a million people traveling it every year. And the end result is Lake Erie has consumed more than 1,500 commercial vessels. Some say wow. up to 3,000 vessels in its history, and thousands of travelers met their doom in its murky, murky waters. As a matter of fact, it's believed that Lake Erie has a higher concentration of wrecks than any other body of water on the planet. Think about that. Think of the lakes and the seas and the oceans. I think of the Mediterranean, Mediterranean alone or the English Channel. You, well, you would the think. The English Channel, you know. You would think. But per meter, Lake Erie appears to be number one. And, you know, and most of those shipwrecks have never been found. In that shallow of water. Yeah. Well, you know, be between its punishing waves and its dismally dark water... It's about as unfriendly as a, an environment can get. On a good day, divers have told me um, they might see 20 feet in front of him, but you've got to get a good day. Right. Most of the time, you're not going to find a shipwreck until you bump into it. Oh, and man. there, then there it is. Um, but today, you know, there's so many shipwrecks worth discussion, and we are going to do other episodes of, of some shipwrecks. But today we're going to talk about just one. And this ship is called the Marquette and Bessemer Number no. 2, and it is the holy grail when it comes to wrecks that are littering the bottom of Lake Erie. 
it's been concealed for more than a hundred years, despite being one of the most sought after shipwrecks in Great Lakes history. Now, let me tell you about the Marquette and Bessemer number two. It's, It's basically a huge ferry. So it's built to transfer up to 32 railway cars that are loaded with coal or steel or iron. She's as long as a football field, about a third as wide. And this is going to take place in 1909. And at this time, she's making a journey every single day from the port in Conneaut, Ohio, which is right on the border with Pennsylvania. And she sails northwest across Lake Erie to Port Stanley in Ontario. Now, I heard, you know, of course, she's not the Titanic, but I also heard she was state-of-the-art at that time. Well, she was built, they said, she was built to withstand the rigors of the Great Lakes. By 1909, they had 150 years of history sailing the Great Lakes. They should have known what it took to keep a ship afloat in this treacherous water. Right, and they were proud to, you know, introduce the Marquette Bessemer number two because uh, Marquette de Bessemer number one Her sister sucked. Ship? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think, I think they were both relatively close together. They were both oh, okay. sailing at the same time. All right. They run out of names or something? That's why they had to go? <laughs> I think the Marquette and Bessemer people were just very proud. Yeah. Was, we like our Marquette Bessemer, but like we George can do better. Foreman. You know, it was like George Foreman. You, right. know, you just keep uh, keep adding numbers. Exactly. So anyway, on, on an average day, it's a 60-mile journey. It takes about five hours to make. Um, but December 7, 1909, this is not an average day. Um, just, you heard me say December. This is a winner. And the wind, this cold wind is whipping up. And gusts, they're getting to be about 50 miles per hour or more. And just when the ferry is ready to set sail, this giant ore carrier breaks its lines and starts pulling away from the dock in Conneaut. And the Marquette and Bessemer number two has to wait two hours while a harbor tug wrestles that other ship into position. So we're already waiting two hours longer than normal. Exactly. Okay, to set sail. And then the ferry's getting ready to pull away, and wouldn't you know it, here comes the only ship's paid passenger who's late, and he's hailing the ship, and he's his name's Albert Weiss. He's the treasurer for the Keystone Fish Company in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, legend has it that he's carrying a leather briefcase filled with 50000 in cash. 50000 in cash. That had to be a lot of money back then. Right. So so he's they're late pulling out, but he's also late, he's late. for the late ship. So they got to pull back for him. Okay. And so Captain McLeod is, like, really annoyed. But he finally gets underway. But one can only wonder how history might have been different if that ferry had been able to start its journey at its scheduled time of 8 a.m. Instead, the storm on the other side of the lake had two and a half hours to be brewing into this winter monster that was going to last all night. Oh, man. So, just before 10.30 a.m., the Marquette Bessemer Number 2 begins its journey. Now, its captain is Captain Robert McLeod. Not Captain Stephen now, Yoder? Oh. You know, but... No, I want to live. I'll, I'll be Stephen Yoder today. <laughs> Don't be jealous. <laughs> okay. Uh, because McLeod's not going to survive this, so it's a good thing yes. you're not yes. the captain here. And this guy clearly has seawater in his veins. He was one of seven brothers. They were the sons of Scottish immigrants, and six of his brothers made their living at sea. Uh, brothers Hugh and Duncan were ship captains. Brother Stuart was a first mate. Angus was a sailor. And his brother John had turned down an opportunity to be a captain so he could sail as Robert's first mate. Huh. So when the Marquette and Bessemer number two pull away, 
Captain Robert McLeod and First Mate John McLeod are both on that ship. Man, I wish it was, well, I mean, Angus is such a great name, but I don't want him to die, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, all right. Maybe. Angus and Duncan, those are some good ones. Yes, uh, for sailors, too, you know. Absolutely. Angus. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one might assume it would take a lot to rattle a seasoned sailor like Captain McLeod, but as the Marquette Bessemer number 2 pulls away from Conneaut, I've got to believe that Robert McLeod is more than a little nervous, and I'll tell you why. All right, let's hear it. Just one month earlier, do you remember the lyrics to the Edmund Fitzgerald song? Oh, they com- I... they com- continually repeated how it was November. Right. You know, the winds of November come early, and the witch of November comes still, and yes. November is a bad time to be on the lake My anyway. son would play that all the time. Yeah. Well, Robert McLeod is going to get his own personal experience with a November storm, and he barely makes it out of this one. During that journey, these, the storm brews up, these waves are crashing. He puts his nose of, of the ship right into the, the massive waves, and that's what you're supposed to do because if you turn sideways, good chance you're going to get capsized. So you have to sail right into the I storm. I was going to ask if that and why. So he okay. did that. He did exactly what he's supposed to do. The problem is... This ship was designed with an open stern, and for us landlubbers, the stern is the back of the ship. Okay. And on this ferry, the rail cars ride tracks right onto the ship from the back, but nobody thought it was important to put a gate back there so that when the ships are loaded, you push the gate up and everything's kind of sealed in. So let me get this right. They have a, uh, uh, the ship is kind of open in the back, and there's no, there's nothing stopping anything from just going off the back of the ship? Uh, no, I'm sure the rail cars are locked down, but there's nothing stopping the water from coming in. Oh, and so okay. Captain McLeod notices every time the ship dips into the trough between these waves, all this water rushes onto the back of the ship. Right. And the ship is listing. And he will tell his brother later, Hugh, I thought I had lost her. That He just couldn't believe he had made it through. And, you know, he was not going to be quiet about this. So when he got back from that um, near miss, he went straight to the company. He complained. He explained what had happened. And they told him, you know what? You're right. As soon as the season's over, we'll give you a we're going to add to the, a gate to the back of Okay. Something yeah. to stop the water from rushing. You just in. have to get through this season. Oh, man. <laughs> well... December 7, the Marquette and Bessemer No. 2 sails off into a storm for the last time. Now, it would not be accurate to say it was never seen again. As a matter of fact, one problem with locating the wreckage of this ship is that the ferry was seen too many times. So in Port Stanley, there's a Canadian customs officer by the name of Wheeler who said he saw the ship just offshore around 8 o'clock that night that it was laboring in the high seas and it was too risky for the captain to enter the narrow harbor entrance. He saw the ship turn west, presumably to go find another port. So he thinks that in the middle of this storm, this captain was trying to get to any kind of port. Any port in a storm. Okay, normally he wouldn't go there. That takes us up to 8 p.m. Okay. And we've got somebody on the Canadian side saying it was here. Okay. Later that night, residents along the Canadian shore said they could hear this mournful whistle of this ship at 3 a.m. in the morning. And then you've got a resident of Port Bruce on the Canadian side, a little further to the east, but still on the Canadian side. He heard the whistle at 5 a.m., and he said it was so close to shore he thought the ship had run aground. 
but he couldn't see the ship physically because it was snowing pretty good. So you've got all these sightings and, and, and hearings on the Canadian side. Meanwhile, on the other side of the lake in Ohio, residents are reporting their own late night sightings. So east of Conneaut, you've got so, a woman who is adamant that she saw the ship's lights and heard its whistle that evening. So this is just east of where the ship is supposed to go. Right. More importantly, it's 60 miles away from where the Canadians are hearing it. Wow. It should not, it should not, not going to be hearing on be both in two sides. places. Right. And, and they've got some really legitimate people who have, have said they, they saw it. They, there was a captain and a chief engineer of a steamer that was anchored at Conneaut, and they said they saw the profile of the ferry at midnight huh. headed east. And there was a, an ore unloader by the name of William Rice and, and two of his friends. They said they heard the ferry blowing distress signals at 1.30 a.m., so obviously the ship couldn't have been near both both shores at the same time, and not surprisingly, uh, these stories have given rise to all sorts of haunting and, and ghostly explanations. Oh, I love that. Let's get into that. Um, but you know, I, it, it could also have meant possibly. See, this was a. They should have been in Port Stanley by four or five on a, a normal day, uh-huh. and the idea of them still being out there at five six in the morning. I almost picture them desperately sailing back and forth, trying to find a port. Maybe they got to Port Stanley, saw they couldn't be there, and turned around in the wee hours of the morning and tried to get back to Conneaut. Right. I, I would think it would be very dangerous to go into port during a storm. You know, right. The- and maybe they kept thinking if they go back to the other side, it'll be okay. So right. I, it's just, ah, oh, you just Because it is a big lake. Whistle. You could hope that you could get out of the storm. You somewhere. Know. Somewhere. Right. And apparently not. Well, and you've got to remember that in 1909, they're pretty much on their own. There's no GPS to guide them. Uh, They navigated by compass and landmarks. But in a storm, in the dead of night, there's no visual landmarks to guide them. No Google Maps. No Google Maps. They didn't even have a communication system for reaching the world that was on shore. There was no way to transmit their situation or location. Just that helpless, mournful whistle whistle that residents kept hearing at night. So, and you know, they didn't even have the benefit of weather radar that might have warned them to stay put in Conneaut. Like, hey, there's a storm in Port Stanley. Let's just stay here. You know, they didn't even have that benefit. So anyway, the next day comes. Uh, the Marquette and Bessemer, number one, has not shown up in any port. So several ships join in the search, including her sister ship, the Marquette and Bessemer, number one. Oh, there we go. There's uh, Bessemer, number one. Families are holding their breath, you know, really hoping that the ship's going to be found. And in Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, Sarah Clancy, she's the sister of the wheelsman, John Clancy, she thought her nightmare was coming true. The night before the ferry sailed, she had woke to tell her family she had had a dream of the ship sinking in a storm and her brother John calling out. Oh, man. So on December 12th, so this is five days later, the first debris turns up. The steamer, the William B. Davok, passes through a bunch of wreckage in the water. And so the ship goes from missing to sunk. Um, they just don't know where. And then later that same day, they make a grisly discovery. 15 miles from Erie, Pennsylvania, they find a lifeboat. It's half filled with water, and it's carrying nine men, all frozen solid. Oh, man. 
Now, they had all been wearing light work clothes, suggesting they had abandoned the ship really quickly. Right, because other than that, you would be grabbing, you know, big blankets and stuff like that. Right. right. There were no blankets, no coats, and they were all wrapped around each other. So clearly, they had made the decision to try to stay warm. Um and newspaper reports said the, the faces of some of the men were bruised and cut, and there was this strange detail. The clothes of a 10th man was found lying frozen at one end of the boat. Now, nobody's going to be carrying on an extra pair of clothes that they're not putting on. Right. Um, and this led the recovery team to ponder whether a sailor had gone mad, taken off his clothing, and jumped overboard. And it's possible because one of the last stages of hypothermia is you feel unusually warm. Oh, absolutely. So it is not unusual in mountains. I've heard of people in Mount Everest taking off their clothes, you know, before they die because they're they're very hot. Exactly. So it sounded like a a legit um, occurrence that had happened there. And the find had one last surprise, which might have seemed odd but harmless at first. The body of steward George R. Smith was found to be in possession of two large knives and a meat cleaver from the ship's galley. Now, you said they jumped off the ship. They have no blankets. They have no coats. But this guy guy had time to grab a meat cleaver? Knives and a meat cleaver. And that little detail is going to become very chilling a few months later. So bear with me until we get to that part in the story. So the majority of the crew, including seven of the nine men found in the lifeboat, they lived in Conneaut. And um, as their bodies were brought back, you know, 900 residents turned out for a memorial um, singing Rock of Ages and other religious hymns. That's a very close-knit community, the sailing community. Right, so I'm sure they have a lot of family members on that lake all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so over the next few months... Uh, more wreckage, and a few more bodies turned up. Interestingly, on both sides of the lake. So on the Canadian side and... On the Canadian side. Ohio, Pennsylvania side. On the, well, in this case, the New York side. In the spring of 1910, they found an empty lifeboat broken in two on the rocks of the harbor at Buffalo, New York. Huh. In April, the ship's first mate, John McLeod, he washes up near the Niagara Falls Power Company in Niagara Falls. Oh, I've been there. Yeah. 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 Um, you can't go to That's Niagara Falls way and down see that there. power company. Yeah. Unbelievable. In May, Chief Engineer Eugene Wood is discovered near Port Colborne in Ontario by a farmer that spotted the floating body still wearing its life preserver. Oh, so he, he uh, obviously had the life preserver, but did anybody else in the, did they say anything about anybody else in I the don't life believe, raft? I don't believe anybody else was found wearing a life preserver. Interesting. So, so one person say, decides I want to get a meat cleaver and some knives to survive. And oh, we're going to get to that <laughs> okay. really All soon right. here. Um, so in September, so they're finding a body, you know, once a month here. In September, um, a body suspected of being John Clancy. Now, he's the watchman whose sister dreamed of his fate. He was found. Now, they never confirmed his identity. You know, they didn't have DNA back then. And by September, there was, you know, decomp and and all of that stuff. But they were able to trace his shoes to a department store in Erie, Pennsylvania. And that's where his family lived. So they believed that he was found. That's some detective right there. So go another month. Now we're in October. So we're almost 
uh, what were like 10 months after the ship went down. Okay. Uh, two more bodies turn up within a couple of days of each other on Long Point, which is a peninsula in Ontario. William Wilson, he's a willsman, and the captain himself, Robert McLeod. And remember those kitchen knives found with the ship steward and that yeah. lifeboat full of frozen bodies? Who can forget? The captain's body has deep slash wounds. Whoa. He has been apparently attacked by knives. So this has led to some speculation about what might have happened. They believe when that ship was listing, Hmm. they could not use two of the lifeboats. So there were only two lifeboats. So they were fighting for them. Yes. And if they were blaming the captain and the officers. You're not getting on my ship. You sank this. Yeah. You sank this. We're using these lifeboats. And you could almost see one or more of these men slashing at these guys with a knife to get them to... Because that happened. I mean, that happened on the Titanic. There were fights over, you know, right, lifeboats. Right, Very how limited people could space. get in there? Anyway, Steve, the rest of the crew was resigned to the deep. And strangely, nobody knows how many that is. Get this. I, I'm amazed that an accurate record doesn't exist. But reports number the loss of lives between 30 and 38. A hmm. range of eight... They don't have I mean, a log? I can barely understand how you can't account for one person. I mean, somebody showed, you know, did somebody not miss one person, but eight? Right. Yeah, I, that's a mystery to me, too. I have no idea what happened there. Anyway, the, the cause of the sinking of the Marquette and Bessemer Number 2 is unknown, although the ship's design and McLeod's experience the previous month seems a pretty good clue. And as I said at the start, its location is also a mystery. The best guess of experts is that she sailed east, then attempted to reach shelter behind Long Point. Um, On several occasions, the discovery of the wreck was announced. I even found a newspaper in September of 1910, so that's less than a year later, retracting a story because they had announced that the ship had been found. So for 100 years, people have been saying, we found the ship. And then it turns out they haven't found the ship. And for at least two decades, there are rumors that it has been found, but that the finders are keeping its location secret. But others don't believe that at all. Really, two decades, nobody is giving up this ghost. Right. We're talking about a, a a pretty big ship in shallow Lake Erie. I mean, we're talking about calls here. I mean, you're thinking that, you know, the waves could literally part the sea there, you know, kind of, you know, the wave being so big that the bottom is not that, you know, not that far behind. Right, right. So you're talking about... Well, just the idea of people being able to keep a secret. You know, what's the saying? You can have a secret unless two people know it. Right. Well, now you've got a ship of divers out there and they found it, and over 20 years later, nobody's revealing it. I, I don't I don't yeah, think it was I'm, found. Not in this day of Facebook. I don't think it was <laughs> but you know, Steve, um, I had the privilege in 2004. I had the opportunity to speak with a Bob McLeod who lived in Chicago, and he was the great nephew of the oh. two McLeods who died on the ferry. Okay. So I had the chance to interview him. Uh, he was a diver himself, and he was desperate for word that the ship had been found. He had heard that there were rumors that it was found, and he was waiting for somebody to announce where it was. His family, of course, had passed this story down for a century, and it had been a lifelong dream of his to be able to dive to see it. So you said he was a diver. Did he, he ever? Diver. Did he ever go looking for it himself? No. No? I mean, 
I'll tell you, you would have to be such a specialist to dive in in Lake Erie. Like Mm -hmm. I said, you've got to know what you're doing because you're not seeing anything. You know, when you're down there, you have to dive on top of the ship and then let it bump into you, basically. Um, So now you brought up a good point about the shallowness of Lake Erie. So remember when I told you that Marquette and Bessemer number two was a football field long? Yes. And do you remember when I told you that the deepest point in Lake Erie was 210 feet? Uh, Yeah, that's... So for the mathematically challenged, let me point this out. That would be me, by the way. She's (laughs) talking about me. I'm talking about you. (laughs) I'm talking about everybody in this room because we're all mathematically challenged, aren't we? If you stood the ferry on its bow at the very deepest point in Lake Erie, a third of it would still be sticking out into the air. Wow. If you put it anywhere else in Lake Erie, to the average depth of Lake Erie is 62 feet. If you put it almost anywhere else in Lake Erie, more than two-thirds, about three-fourths of it would be sticking out of the water. And they can't find this thing? It's crazy that with modern technology, we have not been able to find this ship. Uh, on the bad girls. They're trying to make me screw up here. That's okay. They're munching on chips and trying to make me screw up. Keep this part in the episode. I will. I'm going to keep this part. Kim and Marsha. Bad We're girl. keeping this in there. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, not that they could see. They're in the middle of a sort of a blizzard. So visibility is really low. I think everybody else was on time that day. And also, <laughs> so if for there this were, one. they were probably ships. You can't get next to a ship that's floundering in high seas. You're going to wreck into it. Right. So you're on your own. Until that storm's over, you're on and your own. And there were no lighthouses so. earlier. Right. Um, we're also talking about a decade before the Titanic, too. So, I'm, you know, technology is probably a little limited, too. 1909. Right. So they're taking coal in these big rail cars. So the railroad is loading these yeah. railway cars. They get over there, and then the trains and then get to keep going. And why would they take a passenger? Um, he, he was willing to pay for it, mm-hmm. and they have room for it. I'm him. sure they've done that a little bit here and there. You know, yeah. somebody who needs to go to... Yeah. You know. And why didn't they use cargo ships? Um, well, you have to have a ferry to carry mo- vehicles. Right, and, and those the were considered vehicles. Vehicle. So they would, this had tracks on it. Yeah, so it, had it would tracks just right on the, the, so the coal doesn't uh, possible. Does coal like disintegrate? The coal is inside the rail cars. So the important thing is here is it's carrying train cars. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be heavier than the coal for sure, the train cars. So. Renee, you have a question. Yes. Okay, back to the guy that was the passenger, the only passenger that got on the briefcase. Yes. $50,000. Yes. Right. What do you think there might be some treasure hunters out there trying to find yeah. what that was? Well, we're hoping that a treasure a treasure hunter found it and will go to our Patreon page. And there you go. Yeah, and let us know where it's at. Exactly. You know, the important thing to remember about these shipwrecks in Lake Erie is that it's fresh water. So things down there don't dissolve the way they dissolve in salt water. Right. So the ships down there They're probably last preserved. for a long, long time. I don't imagine mm-hmm. money would, though, would it? Um, I don't know. Well, if it was coin. If it was coin. Well, it wasn't. I don't think it was coin. Yeah, I don't think you would have. 
50,000. It was in a briefcase, so it might have kept it together. I mean, did they find any in the Titanic that were bills, paper bills? I yeah. think they did. Did they? Well, at least uh, Bill Paxton did in that movie, The Titanic. Okay, <laughs> that was fictional. Oh, was it real? Leonardo is alive and well today. Oh, uh, Bill so, Paxton's okay. not, unfortunately. So, well, that's a good point. Yeah. If it was not like in a chamber where it was trapped, it could have floated, ended up on shore. Right. And you'd probably want to keep it, not tiny. I would have been fine with the meat cleavers and the fifty thousand. Oh, I should. And the fifty thousand. <laughs> cook on board. Um, what's this? Is a steward also the cook? Oh, I have no. Is it? No. I have no idea. So, and that might be why he was really in a position to grab those knives. So, yeah, just in case they're stuck out there a long time, you just cut up fillet some fish while they're waiting to be. That's what I was thinking. You know, maybe they were, you know, gonna smack them over the head when they come by beside them. There you go. There you go. There you go. Oh, I actually hit the captain. You know. And you know, if it wasn't winter, maybe they could have survived long enough to do that. But these guys were these the newspaper article from 1909 said they were frozen solid. They were frozen solid. They were frozen solid. Five days in in blizzard type weather and, and cold weather. And don't munch on that, Kim. Just suck on that chip very quietly. <laughs> so anyway, all right. that's all I got for you today. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. If you want to know more, visit our website at ohiomysteries.com. For photos, news clippings, and more on the story of the Marquette and Bessemer number two. And if you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and would be grateful if you would like, follow, share, or retweet us to your friends or family. We'd love to have them join us. And if you really, really like our podcast, our website has a link to our Patreon page where you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. And we'll give you a shout out right here. Any money we get goes toward equipment, server fees, and research costs. We are so pleased to be able to share a little of this amazing musical talent in Ohio. At the start of this podcast, you heard a clip from the song Ghouls in the Headlights by Dustin Hodgkinson. You can find Dustin's music on his YouTube channel. Just search for Dustin H-A-J or ReverbNation.com. We'll put links to both of his pages on our website if you have any trouble finding them. Just look under our Featured Musical Artist link. For now, we'll leave you with the full version of Ghouls in the Headlights, and we'll see you back here next week. There's ghouls in the headlights on a long and winding road. An outstretched town in a place to call.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.